from the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Danda. And on today's show, I'm going to let you into a bit of a secret. A lot of people ask me, why or how do I remain so positive? And I'm always smiling and joking and laughing around. I have to put it down to the company that I keep. And I'm quite selective about the people that I engage with on an ongoing basis and build meaningful connections. And they are people that are full of energy, full of positivity. And I have to say, today's guest is absolutely one of those. Jean-Louis Demer, thank you so much for joining the show today. And I know I've mispronounced your name, but hey, <laughs> I'm not from Belgium, so that's the best I can do. Thank you, Paddy, for, uh, for having me uh, around. As you were introducing, I just was looking for this emoji button because I thought this introduction was like so lovely. Thank you so much. It's really, I really appreciate uh, you saying this. Uh, and, oh. and I'm like delighted to spending some time with you. Oh, you're welcome, my friend. And I'm so looking forward to this conversation. And actually, Charles-Louis, let's start with a question I have for you. When you meet people for the first time and you engage with people, how quickly do you usually realize that that person is someone who's like-minded and somebody that you feel that you have a real connection with? I'd love to know your thoughts on that. That's a great question. I'd like to put it back to maybe, you know, the first time we talked, I had somebody suddenly calling me from the UK saying, hey, you know, I'm doing this this visual thinking adventure, you know, and we haven't really launched yet, but we'd love to have uh, you on our show. And I was like, you know, it's as I think it's really at the opening of the conversation that I see, okay, you know, let's just talk and let's just see what happens. And I think maybe it's it's about the sus- suspension of judgment, but I'm just like, okay, you know, this person's talking to me or I'm po- talking to that person. Let's just see where this brings us, you know, like like going on a stream or on an adventure. We, we go to the woods and then there's a few paths that we can take. And then, you know, it's just like, Moving along, and as long as there's no wild tigers or as long as there's no like red flags where somebody's going to bore me to death about whatever you know they come from, it's about going straight to the point while keeping a human connection. So, you know, some people say, okay, you know, when you do business, you have to mean business, and it's like, okay, no, like, no emotions, no whatever, just you know, do your uh, thing. I'm I'm cautious about that because I think even when we do business, we uh, are humans and we have our own background and our own lives and so on. And so it's important to take the whole person with you. I, I think it's always better when we work together or when we do something together. It can be like even going on a holiday with uh, some friends, you know. It's about making sure that the holiday will be good. Hmm. It's about making sure that the adventure, the work will be good. And for that, we need human connections. Because when things get tough, if you know, you talked about uh, staying positive and being with so much energy. And I think when things get tough, 
It's about having the right people around you that will get you through the storm. Hmm. Oh, I love that. I love that. I actually heard someone talking about this the other day on another podcast, and they were saying about relationships and romantic relationships. And they were saying, people always talk about falling in love. And there's the, obviously that love aspect. But actually, you know, when the excitement dies down, it's those other elements of the relationship that are going to keep it going and keep it strong. And I think if you can't have fun and you don't have that positivity, then it could be pretty difficult. It's not for everybody. I, I think some people, you know, it depends on your, your personality and your character. Some people are bouncy, like me. Um, <laughs> other people are very neutral and, and some people are quite pessimistic. So I think we all have our uh, go-to. And so when we see someone else either mirroring that similar trait, we're naturally drawn to them. I'm one of these people who I think within the first 30 seconds, I usually know, I think I can vibe with this person. Yeah. Or I'm thinking, actually, this is going to be really, really painful, this conversation. Oh, I it's need really to get a drink. Wait. And then... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just need to go to the toilet and then you disappear yeah. forever. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's talk about you, shall we? So what do you do? What's your specialism? Just so if anyone hasn't heard about you, just tell us a bit more about you. I would say that one of the things that uh, I I love bringing is this human connection, these relationships, and maybe even in places where people wouldn't expect them. I, you know, I've worked with people or with organizations who said, oh, these two people, they they don't get along and they always like shout at one another whenever there's a, a problem or whenever they meet each other in a meeting and they're exp and whatever. So there's like real tensions and so on. But it's... It, it's about what I love then is, is really, I mean, of course, when they consent, then we work together and we try to find what's their common goal and how can we also like keep the focus on what they need to do together and maybe how their differences can support them in making a good job. So, of course, it's easy when we're like-minded, but mm -hmm. I think the real magic happens when people are, who are not like-minded get into this, this zone moment where they can work together, where they use everyone's special skills or view of the world to move further. You were talking about like falling in love and so on and, and, and marriage. And of course, when we fall in love, it's easy, right? Yay. All fun and, and games and, and butterflies and, uh, and so on. And indeed, it's, it's when this excitement about love, this newness dies down that, okay, can we really like build something together? Let's say a man, a woman decide to build something together or fall in love, whatever, marriage or not, you know, they, they live together. They want to create a future together. They'd love to have kids. Great. And that doesn't work. Great. Well, not great. But I mean, this it's, it's a real thing. Yeah. But how do we deal with that difficulty together? So I think one of my passions, or, or not passion, because it, it has to do with suffering, that word. But one of the things that I, I love to do is really about like seeing this magic happen or contributing into... That I don't know if there's a name for that, but it's really like making people, yeah, spend quality time together. And mm. indeed, because 
it's like finding that special thing and and like also helping them see that it's there mm. so i'm not a marriage counselor i'm not you know like a mediator and so on i i facilitate events with organizations i do workshops i i run trainings and so on but i think to me the the common thing is about this doing something together cooperating on something mm. this is why for instance i love teaching with groups and when i when i teach with groups the uh, yeah like i did a pickup training uh, that finished the other day was online we had people from different countries of the world at some point the group just clicks and starts working together and this is magic when that happens mm. so people think okay online training oh it's going to be boring or i'm going to put my camera off the whole time but it's 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 really again it's about these connections these relationships got it and Talui, in terms of the sessions that you facilitate, the training that you give, would you like to give us a little bit more insight into that? Some of the trainings that I give is about visual thinking. So like it's, which is not about teaching people how to draw. It's more about finding meaning through drawing. So the purpose is not to fill museum, you know, the British Museum uh, or something with, with your drawings. It's really about making sure that it's useful for the work. Mm. And for that, again, you know, we were talking about these different viewpoints and it's about finding simple strokes that make meaning for the group. Mm. I could imagine that I'm facilitating a workshop on, you know, okay, what are things that could help our team and the things that slow us down? In Belgium, I would draw sun and a rain cloud. So the sun would be, for instance, um, I don't know, what would you pick for the sun? Maybe the UK is a bit like Belgium. Sun is usually... Just a round circle with a few lines. Yeah. Yep. And then, yeah, indeed. And then we would use that for what? For the things that slow us down or for the things that bring us forward? Positive things. Positive things for the sun. Positive things. And then the rain cloud would be negative dull. things, drizzling yep. down, dull and so on. Now, if I take the same two drawings and I go, for instance, in the Sahel region, Africa, you know, where it's very hot, very mm. dry. Taking the sun out for positivity will not work because what's super important in these regions is that the crops grow and crops will only grow when there's rain. So this means that I'd need to take the rain cloud for the positive things and the sun for the negative things if I really want my workshop to be successful with the people I work with. So there's even as a facilitator, there's this connection to the group that is super important in order to kind of get it right. And it's okay to fail, huh? you know, and sometimes I just say, okay, you know, hey, I'm from Belgium, you know, in our country, it always rains. So we need the sun to, but it's, it's really about that. And, and some other stuff, it's, it's also about like, what I love is, is to see people discovering the joys of facilitation which actually means, and I, I take this quote from my friend, uh, Francis Laleman, facilitation comes from the French, rendre facile, making things easy. Mm. So the key thing as a facilitator is to maybe just put a frame out. I mean, you, you know about agility, about Scrum, and Scrum being a lightweight frame for mm. people to, to build around this. Well, as a facilitator, the only thing is maybe use the frame, put the frame out there, let the people work within that frame 
and help them reap the rewards. Yeah. I'm a big fan of facilitation. I think that's something that I've had a passion for for a number of years as well. So let's just rewind a little bit and take me back to your childhood. Ooh. For a young Charles-Louis, as he was growing up, I'm assuming in Belgium, talk us through what life was like for you growing up. Mm. Thank you. Well, you know, it's it's what life was like growing up. It's I don't know how much you know about Belgium. It's a, it's a tiny country squashed between France, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, which is even smaller, and and a sea. And we've got like three official languages, but like there's two big regions in Belgium where in the north people speak Dutch or Flemish, in the south people speak French. That's like the basic true truth. And of course, there's exception to that rule. My family, French-speaking family, lived in this in the area where people speak Dutch. So at home, we were speaking French, and I was at school, and I learned Dutch there. Wow. So primary school, all fine. We all grew up together, all great. But you know, once you reach puberty, you go to secondary school, new school, and there suddenly I was still in the Dutch area, and people said, oh, you dirty French-speaking person. You know how teenagers can sometimes do things and I'm I'm not like I'm just saying that this happened okay and and at first I was like okay that's not nice but you know uh, let's just take it as it is and after when I reached 15 16 I wanted to also move on to like at least get some uh, training in French so I I changed schools and then I went to the French speaking area and there the funny thing is they said oh you dirty fr- uh, Dutch speaking uh, guy and so the interesting thing was the only common thing was maybe that I should shower more but it was like it was like okay there I come from the Dutch speaking region so suddenly I'm a, I'm a Flemish so I'm I'm a Dutch guy and the other one I was speaking French at home so I was French so it's like this whole perception and 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 I think that this this was maybe one of the first things that brought me to this curiosity about how people view the world and what is truth. So at that time, I didn't notice. I didn't enter into this philosophical question. But it was interesting to see how people would see different versions of the same story. After I finished my secondary school, I did spend an, an extra year in Germany where I learned to speak German. Although when you ask most Germans and if they if if they learn where I uh, learned German, which was in Bavaria, they will tell me that no, I mean, that's not where proper German is spoken. I tend to disagree with it, but still. And again, it was one year spent there in a, in a college, a boarding school, you know, like Harry Potter. Uh, we would only come back home during the holidays. So it was fantastic. We could be skiing as soon as there was snow. So it was really like a great life. And I got a lot of my independence there as well, because, you know, without any parents, lots of people your age and you can do anything you want. Well, again, within the constraints of the school, but there was still some freedom. So that was that was really great. For instance, those who had the driving license uh, could drive a minibus to the near city if we wanted to go. So there were like two buses for the students and uh, we could drive, you know, it's, it, so there was kind of some freedom and, and, and so that was really great. And one thing after the other, I think while I was at that school, at some point I was back in Belgium in the train and I met somebody who was in primary school with me, so who spoke Dutch. So in the meantime, I had like also gone to a German school. So like you can imagine all the languages kind of 
And and I noticed I couldn't speak to him anymore. I was like looking for my words, although it's been so many years in Dutch. And then I thought, oh, that's hmm, interesting. And then I made a vow, you know, <laughs> this kind of, okay, you know, from this day on. The important thing that I noticed there is that I needed to keep practicing the languages, otherwise they would go away. Right. As a respect for myself and also, you know, like for the people in front, because sometimes you've got, in some languages, you have some words that you can express, but that, that you can't translate. So I think it's also richness to use these different languages when possible. Here's a question for you, Charles. When you're yeah. thinking, which language do you predominantly think in? Depends. For instance, right now, I would be thinking in, in English because I'm speaking English. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of making a shortcut. But when I'm speaking French, I would be speaking in French. Right. Uh, speaking, thinking, well, yeah. What about when you're not speaking to anyone? <laughs> then I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if, if, if I'm spending a week in the UK, for instance, well, then I would probably, I don't know if I'm by myself, maybe I would be, hmm, maybe I would be thinking in French. I don't know. Mm. Maybe I need to stop and think. Think about that next time. Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, like the, the closest I can relate to that, obviously you're a superstar with all these different languages. I can speak two languages just about oh. Punjabi and English just about. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, what, when you were talking about that experience of not being accepted in any one place, I can really relate to that because when I was growing up, although... I was born here in the UK. When I would go to school, the kids would say, yeah, you're, you're from India. And I'd go, I've never been to India, but yeah, I guess I'm originating from India in some, you know, sort of Alexander the Great. Yeah. Alexander the Great, yeah. <laughs> and, and then when I'm in India, people go, oh, you're, you're, they, they call us Valetis. So in Punjabi, Valeti means like foreigner. And I would never be really accepted as a, local Indian because they can tell you a mile off, you know, just the way you're walking. I used to even dress authentic, as authentic as I could. So I'd have traditional clothes, but still the locals yeah. could spot you a mile off and then charge you double the price in every because you know. <laughs> and, and so I, I used to sort of really have this dilemma when I'd, I'd be sometimes sat there reflecting on my own and I'd be like, hang on a minute. I'm not really fully British because People always say I'm not, and I'm not really fully Indian because in India, they don't accept me. So I'm in the middle. I'm just left in this kind of no man's land. I would say the moment where things changed was when I went to the US and okay. it was amazing because I was out there for work and, and this is during the early part of my career. And I, I spent almost a year working out in LA and people there would address me as British. Oh, yeah, it was it was just from the accent, they'd just go, oh, you're British. And I'd go, ah, yes, you got yes. it. Yeah. Well, I think that's the interesting thing for, from what you're telling me and now, and when we combine both stories, it's about, it's always other people labeling us. Like uh, mm. I've had somebody just recently labeling me as a thought leader. Imagine that. And uh, so, so it's really interesting to see how it's actually the others creating these labels for us. Yeah. Which can sometimes create confusion as you were saying your story. Like, okay, if I'm not British, if I'm not Indian, who am I? And someone once said to me, they asked me that exact question I asked you is, when you're thinking, which language do you think in? And I predominantly think in English. Mm. 
even when I don't have any friends around me, which is quite a, which is rare. Quite a lot of time, right? And, uh, <laughs> and, and so I was like, well, I, I think my predominant side is British and English, and obviously I live here, but it, it just gets you to really think about what is your go-to. But that's really interesting. I mean, when you've got four or five languages to choose from, I'm sure it's much more difficult to go, right, this is the language. My, my German is a little rusty, though. But yeah, right. it's, it's indeed. Uh... So, Shalouis, you were talking there about your early schooling and just that whole experience of learning lots of different languages and going to the Harry Potter style of school or boarding school, which sounds really scary for someone like me who hasn't ever really lived away from my parents. So what were you thinking at that time about career-wise? Where were you heading and what were some of the thoughts going through your head? Okay, I had no clue. Right. Uh, really, at that time, maybe one thing, yeah. Huh. I think when I was 16 or 17, I think I must have, I, I told my parents I'd love to work in psychology. I do some psychology stuff, but I think the usual answer is, hey, you know, you're all always in the, in your computer games, nerdy stuff, you're good in maths. Don't do psychology. There's too many people anyway doing these studies. You won't find a job. You should do like civil engineer, something like that, something very serious. And I was, yeah. So I, which is interesting because the work that I do is more about bringing people together and this may be linked to this psychology uh, stuff, although I didn't study psychology. Then the other the the other thing so i have to admit i wasn't really sure about what kind of what i would do career wise at some point i also worked so i had already my first job but on the side i was also doing some reviews for video game websites and 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 so on so or or play testing some games in order to find bugs or actually it was to play them but oh it's out there now so so you know it it's it's interesting but but i think I wasn't really sure because I saw people all around me all serious and in suits and, and, and working and being very serious about their work. And I was like, not sure that's what I want. Hmm. But I had no clue at, as to how the work world looked like. Because maybe, because contrary to you, I've been in boarding school since I was 12. So maybe I was also missing a big part of that equation. Mm. I had fun. <laughs> no, I can imagine, especially skiing and doing all of those fun things. Oh, which yeah. I've never done skiing actually. So, and I haven't lived. I know I should. I should. <laughs> I will one day. Maybe when I come yes. and visit you in Belgium, we'll have to do some stuff. There's no snow and skiing in Belgium, though. We'd have to go somewhere else. But oh, no, yeah, let's let's say just you know do something somewhere in the Alps together. Maybe one of those artificial places we ah yeah do. yeah we could do yeah. that yeah we could do one of those so going beyond that you wanted to do psychology but it sounds like you didn't actually pursue that uh, -uh. <laughs> no so what happened what happened i think my parents or my surrounding i don't remember who convinced me that it was maybe a risky move Right. You know, doing five years of psychology and then noticing that there were like already tens of thousands of 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 you know people trying to get clients in psychology was maybe a risky move and and having something like civil engineering would open much more doors later on. Turns out I found the studies quite boring. 
So I tried it, but I failed. So I, I don't have a university degree. This is out there as well here, a gift. And then I did a three year, I think that I'm not sure how it was called. I think it's a technical bachelor in computer science, applied computer science. So I found the first job, worked. My, my first job was actually working um, at Swift. And there I was doing basically a systems, what? sysadmin stuff, a server maintenance, installing packages, being called at night when the green lights are orange or red, you know, and they don't know what to do. Or, and this is like also because we were working in Belgium, but on a global scale. So we had some colleagues sometimes in the US where uh, job security is much different than in Belgium. So it was always easier for them to call us and have us tell them what to do. Because one mistake could potentially cost them their job. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they're quite ruthless. Well, in Belgium, we've got unions. So I think even, even if you shouted at your boss, you know, or if you, if, you know, it's, it's very hard to fire people in Belgium, which is not the case in the US. So I could imagine somebody, it's their first job. I think in Belgium, there's like, like three months notice period by default. Mm -hmm. And in the US, it's like one week or something like that. So it's even harder to get sacked in Germany, isn't it? They're very strict when it comes to protecting yeah. uh, sort of employees who are welfare. Yeah. And, and again, this impacted my work, but it was about knowing how come, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and again, coming into these, like, how do people see things and view things? I remember at some point we were also writing installation manuals for our colleagues in the operating centers. And there were a few tricky parts that we had then decided to write in red, very bold. So, you know, that it would be seen, but still they kind of hit again. They, they missed it and so on. And one time I decided to go there for the installation. And I noticed that in order to save ink, they printed everything in black and white because the OPCs didn't have access to the computers with the documents, so they had to print it out, but in black and white. So all the red ink or all the thing, all the effort that we made was, yeah. Um, but unless you go and see, you can't know. And I link this back to your story. Unless you go to India and see that they can spot you from a mile away, you know, you don't know it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So you started off in a technical career from what yep. you're telling me. And now you doodle for a living. No, I know you do way more than that. <laughs> so how did you make that transition into what you're doing now? And what was the thought process there? A few things. Mm -hmm. One thing when in around 200, no, sorry, 2009, uh, the company I was working for was in the aftermath of uh, the kind of financial hiccup of 2008, 2009. And so they thought, oh, you know, we must uh, apply lean principles. The idea behind lean is great because it allows you to do more, you know, if, if you like eliminate waste it in your processes and so on, it allows you to do more with the same amount of people. But there, the situation was like they wanted to do the same thing with less people. So at least it was clear from the beginning. So it was not like they were selling us something like a, a transformation for the better of everything. So it was clear that people would get sacked. So, but the interesting thing was that it was happening in wave and in my department, the wave would end roughly a month before the birth of my third child. 
So I saw that as an opportunity. <laughs> like, okay, you know, if they sack me, I'm going to spend time with my newborn child at, at you know, at birth and, and maybe I can support my wife. She was scared. What am I going to do with you? I'll have a baby plus, you know, <laughs> you'll be doing nothing. But in the end, it worked out fine because we could like help each other out. And so that was great. And the job that I got right off, I wanted some job security. So I went for a job in the IT, but in a government thing in Belgium. And this is where I noticed, or they told me, hey, you don't have a university degree, so you will be coder. I say, okay, I can code. But we had the analysts and the architects next to us. And whereas at the previous company, we were really like working together and thinking together and problem solving together. Suddenly we had become, even though we were 20, a very rigid, siloed environment where no one knew what their neighbors were doing. So it was, again, and yeah, you're going to say that I'm always positive, but it was it was really funny to see all these things that I took for granted previously. And by being in that state where, I mean, we had people just coming off university, being an analyst, and making great UML diagrams, fantastic. But when I needed to implement that with code, it would like be a sludge, it would be a drag, and, and it would not be efficient. So it was like I we needed afterwards anyway to come back together to to go back to the drawing board. So it was like this this whole idea I had already heard a bit about Scrum, Agile processes and so on, and I thought, hey, why why can't we start doing this? It was impossible. So I left. And and the next company I worked for, that was great because I worked there as a consultant and they were looking for somebody who had experience with international work because it would be their first project with an offshore team in Mumbai. And it was a company that processed card payments. So basically, you've got these payment terminals, and we were doing the software that gets the data from the terminals and then checks if there's enough money at the, at your bank account and so on. And I think this was 2013 or something like that. The interesting thing there is that we were doing card processing, and the team in Mumbai told us, send us the specs, we'll do the development. And everybody in Belgium was saying, yeah, but you know, they're from India. They'll never get as good as us. And I was like, hey, but you know, I, I had already this multicultural thing where everybody had already told me that I was not good because I came from another. So like, that's not possible. If they're from that company, I mean, it makes no sense that company would send people who can't do the work for an <laughs> offshore contract. I mean, you know, I'm just trying to. And so then, but what was interesting is that actually it was very hard for the developers to work on the code because the technical documentation was too complex. Mm. I mean, it was right, it was specific, but when we're talking about card payments, and in that time, at some point I called the people and I said, hey, you know, how's life at your way? Well, they were talking to me about the paper money they still use every day. Card payments in 2013 was nowhere in Mumbai. So they were trying to implement the system for something that, like, that's not part of their daily lives and that we had in Belgium for 30 years or more. So again, it made me put on other glasses. Okay, great. Let me tell you the story of how it goes like when we go to a shop <laughs> or when we put fuel in our car. 
And this is how it translates to the, so again, you know, like we were trying bit by bit to bring in Agile. And so I became a Scrum Master. And this is where I noticed that actually there's a lot that can be gained, again, by bringing the right people around the table. And so I think this is part of an answer to your question about what brought me from a technical job into something which is more like, yeah, doodling for a living, facilitating team processes or whatever. Well, it's, it's really about seeing how important that is that people talk to one another, the right people, yeah. in order to do stuff. Got it. And it's amazing when I work with a lot of teams and we talk about some of the agile principles or just even general best practice, people say, well, that's just common sense. Why do I need to pay you to come in and tell me we need to talk more, right? Because and you're not doing it. <laughs> I actually had that. I remember in my old organization, one of our very senior managing directors, he actually called me out on that. He said, uh, so why did we fly you from the UK to Germany just to tell us we need to talk more? And I said that exact thing. I said, well, should we just ask your teams how much they talk to one another? Because from what I understand, they're very siloed and they are working in these silos and we need to break those down somehow. And I think from a leadership perspective, it's not always as transparent. They don't see that as much as the teams on the ground. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. We need to have the right structures that enable that collaboration and bringing good people like yourself in to help facilitate those conversations is sometimes needed, right? Otherwise, we're so focused on our individual tasks that we sometimes fail to see the bigger picture. Yeah. And and I love your approach that you did there because the, the person was asking you. Mm -hmm. and, and, and instead of answering, you brought the focus back to the team because it's them doing the work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's about like, hey, have you asked your team, you know? Mm -hmm. What's your responsibility in that as a leader? And how can we make this change? Yeah, absolutely. And it was really interesting because at that time, I was being pulled from one side to the other. Like there were so many teams that were asking for help around the company. And I actually turned around to this guy because he was very negative about, you know, agile and these ways of working, maybe because of previous experiences, he may have had bad experiences. And... I did at one point say, hey, I'm quite happy to go home. I've got three young kids. I've got a family and I'm quite happy to go home and I've got more than enough work to do right now. But the point is, you've invited me here. Your teams have invited me. And um, all I ask is that you hear me out for the next two days. And if after that you don't want to take on board any of the learning, then that's your choice. And it's only at that point that I think he really took a step back and actually supported the work that I was trying to do there. Whereas I think he initially saw me as just another consultant coming in and telling us that we're doing everything wrong, but that really wasn't my intention. Yeah, I'm bringing this back to the, I mean, your first question also, like what, like, how do I know whether uh, a relationship or a people, sometimes people I talk to where it's going well or not. And, and I think feeling or sensing, and I know that this isn't very scientific, but feeling that I can have the right, the difficult conversation, feeling that I can ask the things like, 
not about making them uncomfortable, but like really like showing them, hey, this is what I see. What、mm. do you see? Will we do something about it? 